Uh, Evan and Randy's paper is really so rich and interesting that I wish I had 20 minutes to comment. Uh, there's a lot to admire in it, but I'll concentrate on some concerns and uh, maybe some perplexities I had. First, to me, it's a little unclear the extent to which the paper makes a legal or moral claim. Um, and second, its assertions the Constitution is written in ordinary language seems to be under-theorized and create some internal tensions with some of its theses. And third, the evidence for its claims, insofar as they are wholly legal, it strikes me they need more development. The paper states in its abstract and its by that judges have a legal and moral duty of good faith to follow the spirit as well as the text of the Constitution. My first question is, is what exactly and in what proportion is doing the work to create this obligation, law or morality? If this obligation is wholly an interpretation of the Constitution's text, uh, uh, Evan and Randy are offering an important new discovery about original meaning of the Constitution, namely that it contains a cross-cutting instruction on how it is to be implemented. Indeed, if this is their proposition, it's not so clear to me that this claim is really one about how to fill in the construction zone. It's really about narrowing the construction zone. It's really about how any constitutional provision uh, must be interpreted. And that, I think, is the case even if law fully incorporates a specific morality. It'll still be the law that'll be doing the work. Uh, insofar as their claim, though, depends on a moral rather than legal duties, however, this paper is less a contribution to original in itself than an innovative moral reading of the Constitution. To be sure, its morality is rooted in a claim about the legal feature of the Constitution, the judge's duty and its fiduciary duty. But its full scope, the full scope of that fiduciary duty, would still lack the full force, perhaps, of legal obligation. Moreover, others have located different kinds of moral readings of the Constitution and other features of the Constitution. For instance, popular sovereignty has suggested a moral reading that gives the power of construction to the political branches. Uh, I won't repeat the criticisms of moral readings in general, but what seems to me striking about this, insofar as it depends on some mor morality argument, is that it is really based on one single feature rather than the interlocking separation of powers uh, in the Constitution. To use I Isaiah's famous paradigm, it would be the moral reading really more of a hedgehog than of a fox. In the rest of my remarks, I'll focus on the claims of legal duty. One reason is comparative advantage. I'm not a moral philosopher. But any moral claim must rest on a kernel of a legal claim. And I think that they certainly do that. It, it imposes a kind of a fiduciary duty on judges. Even if Randy and Evan are relying on moral duty that goes somewhat beyond the legal duty, they would need to show the moral duty is consistent with the legal duty that is in the Constitution. And here my first question is whether that claim requires viewing the Constitution as written in the language of the law, despite their denial and their critique of original methods that the Constitution is a legal document. In other words, the view of the Constitution is a fiduciary document, and the judges have a very particular fiduciary duty, sits uneasily, it seems to me, with an understanding that the Constitution is written in ordinary language, fully accessible to a layman. It's hardly a surprise that the author's leading statement of its fiduciary nature is by a by lawyer and justice, James Iredell. And the authors make other claims that seem to me to depend on the language of the law, such as the claims of the term due process has a legal meaning, sort of an American gloss on the law of the land in Magna Carta. Happily for the success of this part of their argument, this contention that the Constitution is written in ordinary language seems to me the most under-theorized part of the paper. Uh, 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 the language, uh, they, they make some arguments that Marshall says that uh, the Constitution is not a code, but all that means, it, it seems to me, is that we shouldn't use the legal interpretive rules of a code, not that it's not a legal document. And in any event, I think uh, original public meaning should begin with the text of the Constitution. And here there seems to be overwhelming evidence that it's a legal document. First, the Constitution refers to itself as law, which suggests that it's written in the language in which laws are largely written. 
Second, the language of the Constitution is filled with a very large number of legal terms. Now, Randy and Evans suggest that terms of art can be accommodated by ordinary language, because ordinary people can ask <coughs> lawyers about their meaning, suggesting that the so-called division of labor solves this problem. But it strikes me that the need for such consultation on such a large scale does not show that the Constitution is written in ordinary language. Quite the reverse, because laymen would need to be constantly consulting lawyers. And some of the terms of the Constitution, like cruel and unusual punishment, aren't patently technical, but only latently so, because they seem to have a perfectly uh, ordinary meaning as well. Indeed, due process is likely another such term. Since in ordinary language, it can mean fair procedure. Terms like these show how perversively legal a document the Constitution is, because readers need even legal interpretive rules about context and prior use to distinguish between ordinary and legal meaning. The legal language of the Constitution strikes me as in tension with one of their other themes, the necessity of substantial amounts of construction. As others have suggested at this conference, not only Mike and me, but Fred Schauer, the more legally infused language is, the more it will be able to address the legal effects of language at the interpretation rather than the construction stage. Again, their own reading of the due process clause, to me, provides an example. Once one understands that due process requires a neutral arbiter, it becomes quite plausible to argue that the modern rational basis test violates the meaning of due process, not just its construction or its spirit. Once these conceptual issues are cleared away, my disagreements are largely ones of judgment about the persuasiveness of the evidence for the content of legal duty of good faith. First, to me, it is peculiar that they do not look more into what was understood by fiduciary duty at the time of the framing. There's a lot here about Burton and good faith understandings that are quite modern, rather than relying uh, on these post-framing glosses. Uh, indeed, ones that, that strike me as very recent. And I think Gary Lawson might be a, a great resource uh, to look more into that uh, question and to show that their views are consistent. Second, their claim that fiduciary duty implies as a legal matter that judges should fill in the construction zone according to the spirit of the Constitution is undeveloped. Here, their best evidence is from the time the Constitution comes from a case not decided on the U.S. Constitution, but the Virginia Constitution. But Chief Justice Marshall seemed to have a less favorable view of the independence of spirit when he pointed out the spirit is generally collected from the words. And John Manning, in reviewing all the evidence, has suggested that jurisprudence had become increasingly textualist and narrowly so by the time of the framing of the Constitution. In short, that their idea of faithful agency was generally not to supplement the text. The paper may also want to rebut an alternative view, that references to the spirit are not key to construction, but that just one of many methods of original in, uh, of interpretation. If so, that the best interpretation of comments like those of Pendleton will be as an evidence of a rule among many that would go to interpretation, not construction. It would tell interpreters to consider purpose in resolving ambiguities of language. Third, in my view, the paper relies too selectively on Philip Hamburger's book on judicial duty to support his views. Philip's own description of the nature of judicial duty that the framers presupposed, I think, is in some tension with their uh, uh, Randy and Evans' claim that a duty of clarity was not part of how judicial duty and thus judicial power was understood. Philip agrees that judicial du duty allowed judges to set aside the actions of other branches, but he shows that judges are dis displaced, uh, was, uh, were understood to displace those actions of other officials only when they are, in quote, in manifest contradiction of the law. This brings me to me and the author's more general disagreement on the duty of clarity, which of course uh, raises some questions and intention perhaps with some parts of their general thesis. And that turns on whether the duty of clarity was part of the communicative content of judicial power. Of course, given the Constitution is a legal document, it seems to me the relative legal communicative content is among lawyers, 
And that communication uh, includes legal traditions that inform the scope of judicial power. Uh, because the English understanding of the scope of judicial authority, it seems naturally, the English understanding of the scope of judicial authority seems naturally relevant uh, to the communicative content of judicial power in the Constitution. By analogy, although the powers of the king, the powers of the king are generally considered quite relevant to fixing the scope of the meaning of executive power. And indeed, there's more evidence that this understanding of the power of judges included a duty of clarity on this side of the Atlantic. James Wilson uh, and George Mason were the only two delegates in the convention who really expressly spoke about judicial review. But they reflected this prior understanding of the scope of judicial power when they said the judicial review applied to, quote, only so unconstitutional laws or to, quote, plainly unconstitutional laws. Uh, these seem to suggest that references uh, to judicial review were intertwined with a duty of uh, clarity. And this background then is the legal context of the numerous statements of both federal and state judges that they were to invalidate laws only uh, if, the, if it was clear under the Constitution. They're naturally understood as reiterate, reiterations of the scope of traditional judicial power that was understood at the time. And some of these statements seem to me no less obviously about their judicial authority than was Marshall's statement that it is the duty of the federal judiciary to say what the law is, which most take as evidence of uh, the power that judicial review was included within the judicial power. For instance, on the bench in Calder, Iredell speaks of to quote, the court's authority to declare legislation void and says it is only to be used in clear cases. Hamilton's remarks on the irreconcilable variance that's required uh, to trigger uh, the invalidation of laws, of course, comes in a, the Federalist paper, which announces, quite at the beginning, is to examine the Judiciary Department of the proposed uh, government. So I think these are uh, 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 evidence of the nature of, uh, uh, of, of judicial power. In short, Randy and Evan, in my view, ignore some relevant evidence and impose too stringent standards on other bits of evidence, and above all, fail to consider the cumulative weight of evidence extending from England, the convention and judicial practices in both state and federal courts. Their approach, it seems to me, if carried to other clauses of the Constitution, would make the Constitution's communicative content systematically thinner and more abstract than it really is. But let me end on some notes of agreement. Assuming that taking account of the purpose as well as the text of a provision is an important way to interpret constitutional provisions, nothing in the duty of clarity is inconsistent with taking that purpose into account. The duty of clarity only applies uh, after one clarifies meaning with all relevant rules. It's not an extreme theory and deference. That is not, I think, the understanding in judicial power to whatever other branches think the text makes. Uh, so uh, insofar as they are arguing uh, that the purpose is a very important way of construing the Constitution, I, I think uh, that is completely consistent uh, with uh, the, the uh, uh, claim of uh, the requirement of uh, the duty of good faith. More generally, I do celebrate Randy and Evans' work as part of, I think, a broader trend. That's one way I think I, I look at their work. The duty of good faith, like that of original methods originalism, and Will Bode and Steve Sachs' uh, law of interpretation, I think are converging efforts to maintain one of the original uh, virtues of originalism, its relative determinacy. Uh, this very rich paper is yet more evidence of the recognition if that claim is given up, original loses much of its attractive force. 
Uh, okay, you guys have, I guess, a few minutes if you would like to respond to sure, John's um, words. Thank you for the comments, John, for the praise and earnest criticism. Um, for one thing, I think both of us have been uh, great admirers of your work and your work on the duty of clarity in particular. Um, to the extent that anybody in this room has not already read it, I would commend it to your attention. It's very valuable stuff. Um, I want to begin by addressing uh, an initial question about our claims pertaining to moral duty as distinct from legal duty. I want to be clear that we are not asking and we are not contending for a moral reading of the Constitution or a moral duty on the part of judges to act in accordance with normative theories that are not substantiated by the letter and the spirit of the Constitution, uh, the content of the Constitution. Uh, when we speak of moral duty, we always do so with reference to the fact that we believe that any exercise of legal power over another individual or a group of individuals has moral implications. That doesn't lend itself to a freestanding, um, independent moral duty. Um, so to the extent that anyone would have gotten the impression that our paper depends upon a moral reading of the Constitution, that's, that's not what we're asking for. Um, the Constitution does embody moral convictions, but in terms of the duty of a judge, it is first and foremost to the law and to the extent that the law embodies a moral conviction, the judge gives effect to that, but he doesn't have any moral duty independently of that. Um, with respect to our claims about the Constitution's status as a document that can be read and understood by ordinary people, um, I think that we're very clear about our belief that the Constitution does bear the marks of uh, 18th century legal conventions with respect to its formulation and with respect to certain aspects of its text. Uh, what we push against towards the end of the paper is the idea that a constitutional term, um, to the extent that it isn't something that somebody, a layperson going to a lawyer would have asked about, um, would have been told, like, here's the way that I conceive it. For a term of art to do its work, it needs to be at least reasonably possible for an ordinary person to go to a person that's a specialist in the trade, ask a question about the meaning of that term, and get an answer um, that specifies a particular thing. So in the context of a duty of clarity, the ordinary person would go to a person with training in 18th century law, ask about what the meaning of the judicial power is, and they would be told, among other things, that yes, there is this duty of clarity to set aside an unconstitutional or an unlawful act um, if, only, if and only if it's clearly unconstitutional. That's what we take issue with, not the proposition that the Constitution isn't in certain respects, and in vital respects, a legal document that you can only understand by drawing upon um, 18th century legal conventions. So I guess our claim about the duty of clarity is that the extent to it, to the extent that uh, the judicial power is a term of art, what John needs to show, I think more convincingly than he does in the duty of clarity, is that that understanding was so well entrenched that an ordinary person in a position to um, support the ratification of the Constitution would have been told by an 18th century lawyer, somebody familiar in the trade, that yes, among other things, this would have included that. Uh, let me just uh, add a couple of points and then we can move on to the discussion. First of all, thank you, John, for those comments. Uh, 
although they were, it was, it was a lot to digest uh, uh, given how fast you read them. Um, so it will just, I'm, it'll take me a while for them all to sink in so that I can, it, it's not that you violated the duty of clarity exactly, uh, but it was, a, it was challenging to follow. Um, uh, let me suggest that I don't think there's any more reason to view our project as requiring a moral reading of the Constitution than there is to view your um, and Mike's, Michael's uh, project on the good Constitution as being a moral reading of the Constitution. You have a vision of the Constitution as normatively justified, that there is a reason to adhere to this Constitution because it leads to good results, and you have an entire book-length treatment as to why the supermajoritarian constraints that are in the Constitution do lead to good results, and it's because of those good results, it's a good Constitution that ought to be followed. That's a normative argument. You plainly make it as a normative argument, as well you should. Um, and we're not doing anything categorically different than you're doing. I mean, we're arguing that there are various reasons why this a written constitution uh, is a valuable thing, why this particular written constitution is a valuable thing. It ought to be followed. And that judges, and we add to this, uh, you know, uh, a, a claim that's very consistent with Richard Ray's claim, and that is that each and every judge um, swears an oath to adhere to this Constitution, which creates a moral duty on the part of each and every judge. There is a unanimous consent amongst the federal judiciary and the state judiciary to follow this Constitution. And that is a moral uh, responsibility that a judge has. To say that a judge has a moral duty to follow this Constitution is not to make a separate kind of a claim that that judge should then, in following the Constitution, engage in a moral reading of the Constitution. These are just using the term morals in two different contexts. So uh, we're not making any more of a moral reading of the Constitution than, um, than anybody else is who, has to, who acknowledges that. The fact that the Constitution exists does not automatically give us a reason to value it and to follow it. You need a normative argument for why the Constitution ought to be followed, if only the argument that the Constitution is law and the law ought to be followed. That's, that's an argument you can make. Um, among others. Uh, and, and so that is basically our project. And uh, I would also like to stress um, the, the positive note on which you ended, and that is the convergence um, of a number of people who are doing originalist theory on a similar idea, which is that constraint is needed in what can be called the construction zone, but need not be called the construction zone. And amongst the convergences that, I, that we didn't mention in our summary of the paper is the idea that the search for the original purpose or function of provisions in order to um, uh, inform the construction of legal doctrines to implement those provisions um, does start to become very much like what used to be called original intent, originalism, which is the old originalism. There is, in fact, a type of convergence that's happening uh, in our approach between the new originalism based on public meaning and the old originalism based on original intent if you categorize uh, the public meaning originalism as the basic approach to interpreting the communicative content of the text itself, and original purpose as the way of doing um, uh, constitutional construction such that both the letter and the spirit of the Constitution are rendered consistent with each other.